0: I read an interesting statistic um, from the director of traffic safety at AAA who estimates that between 25 and 50% of all traffic accidents are caused by distracted drivers. Distracted driving is the number one cause of traffic accidents. People get distracted on the road for all kinds of reasons. They're driving. And uh, their focus is taken off of the road because there's kids trying to crawl over the back seat. And so they turn and push those kids back into their high chair. Or, or maybe they're texting and driving. Or, or maybe there's a wreck on the side of the road and they're looking over there. We call that rubbernecking, right? They're leaning over to see what's happening. Or, or maybe you've uh, seen the, the woman who's a little late to, to, to work on Monday and she's doing her makeup in the mirror while she's driving. Or maybe you've seen the preacher who's trying to finish that sermon and he's writing his sermon notes on his on the driving wheel uh, as he, he goes down the road, but distracted driving is a problem. The reality is churches can get distracted as well. God has called the church to have a clear mission, a clear focus, and oftentimes churches are driving towards that focus when they take their eyes off the road, so to speak, and they get distracted by other things. They begin to focus on other purposes, and that's a very easy thing to do. It's very easy to get distracted from what the church should actually be all about. And so sometimes uh, we think that the the church, we slip into this mindset of thinking that it's an entertainment venue whose primary job it is to please an audience. Or we think about the church like a secular business where the bottom line is the numbers and numerical growth. Or we think that the church is a social group whose primary aim is to, to meet all the needs of the people who are in the group. We get distracted from what God has called the church to be and to do. Church... God has given the church of the Lord Jesus a very clear and singular focus, and that is to make much of Jesus here and to the ends of the earth and to help people know Jesus and grow in their relationship with him. Amen? Amen. And so we've been talking the last couple of weeks about making sure that Jesus is our focus, that we don't get distracted from him. And that's what Colossians chapter 1 is all about. Paul is holding Jesus up for us and showing us who Jesus is And making sure that Jesus has first place in our life. And so where we've come the last couple of weeks in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, the apostle Paul talks about uh, Jesus as Lord of creation. He says he has first place over the entire earth because all things were made through him, all things were made for him, and everything is sustained by him. And then last Sunday, we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where Paul says, not only is Jesus Lord over creation, He's also Lord over the church, God's recreated people. And He's Lord of the the church. He should have first place in the church. He should be the focus of the church. Why? Because of His resurrection, because of His deity, and because of His saving work. And that's what Paul is focusing on in verses 18 through 20. So when you come to verse 20, which is where we ended last week, verse 20 is about the saving work of Christ. Paul ends that verse by saying that God is reconciling all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, verses 21 through 23 is an expansion of of verse 20. Verse 20, Paul says, Jesus is Lord of the church, Because of his work on the cross, verses 21 through 23, Paul is now going to explain more about the work of Jesus on the cross. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about what it means for Jesus not only to be Lord of creation and Lord of the church, but what it means for Jesus to be Lord of the cross. I want to just reflect uh, this morning on what the cross of Jesus accomplishes. Okay, and that's what we're going to see in verses 21 through 23. You know, the Christian life really begins with an understanding that the good news of God's grace is not about what we accomplish for God, but what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Amen? That means that the gospel is not about what we do for Jesus, it's about what Jesus has done for us On the cross. And that's what verses 21 through 23 are all about. It's what Jesus has done for us on the cross, what the work of Christ on the cross accomplishes. So let's look together at Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. Paul says, Once you were, notice the, the tense of the language there, you were, that that is this is something that describes you in the past. You were alienated and hostile in your minds, and that was expressed in your evil actions. But now, verse 21 is about the past, verse verse 22 is about the present, but now, he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. Now he's going to shift to the future in order to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So I want you to notice this morning three things that the cross of Jesus accomplishes. And here's the first one. We see it in verse 21. Paul tells us that through the cross... Enemies become friends. Through the cross, enemies become friends. Now, verse 21 is describing who we were before we knew Christ. He uses the past tense in verse 20, 21, and he describes us in three ways. He says, Once you were alienated, hostile in your minds, and engaged in evil deeds or evil actions. So, notice the triad that he uses there. We were alienated, we were hostile and we, we were evil. This is who we were. This was our condition before knowing Christ. And it's not a good condition, is it? These are not ways that you want to be described. Alienated, hostile, evil. But Paul says, before you came to know Jesus, this is who you were. Now, to be alienated simply means to be estranged. It means to be separated from, from God. It means to be far from God. We, we've got Thanksgiving coming up in about a month, and some of you have been at a, an awkward Thanksgiving meal when an estranged family member shows back up, right, that, the crazy uncle or whatever. It's always awkward. Why? Because they're distant. They're, they're estranged. Paul says, before you knew Jesus, you were distant from God. You were estranged from God. You were far from God. And then he says, not, not only were you alienated, you were hostile in your Mind, that means to be opposed to God. Even in the way that we think, even in our thinking, we choose our way and not God's way. We are opposed to God. We are opposed to His character. We are opposed to His way and will. We are hostile to Him. Even our thinking is fractured by our sin. We are hostile in mind. And then the third way that he describes this, he says, you, you are engaged in evil actions. And evil actions really describes the result of the first two things. Because we're alienated, because we're hostile in mind, we, we live that out. We act that out in ways that express exactly how far from God we really are. Alienated, hostile, evil. Evil. Now, those three terms really describe a vicious cycle, don't they, right? The more that we are alienated from God, the more we will be hostile in our mind. The more we're hostile in our mind, the more we'll be engaged in evil actions. The more we're engaged in evil actions, guess what? The more we'll be alienated from God. And it's a vicious cycle that continues on and on. And this is who we are when we don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We are caught, we are trapped in this vicious cycle of sin, of alienation and hostility and, and of evil. It's a vicious cycle until someone can step in and break the cycle. I, I used to pastor a small church outside of Paris, Texas. Um, call, it was in Direct. Has anybody heard of Direct, Texas? That was the, the town I, I pastored in. Um, they, they said that they got their name because uh, it was a place where you could go directly across the Red River back in the day to get your alcohol. And you just go direct across the Red River up to Oklahoma, get your alcohol and bring it back to direct, Texas. Direct, Texas, there are more cows than, than people. And I remember driving along the road one time and seeing a cow that was stuck in it was stuck in barbed wire. And the more it tried to to get out of that barbed wire, the more it got stuck. And I thought, well, what that's that's a vivid picture of what happens in our sin. We, we are trapped in our sin, and sometimes the more we're trying to, to get out of it, the more we get stuck into it. And that is exactly what Paul is saying about us. He's delivering a hard truth. He's saying we are born as enemies of God. You say, Pastor, that's harsh. An enemy of God? Really? I was born as an enemy of God? I mean, we don't like to think about ourselves that way, right? But that's actually, actually the language Paul uses. He says you are hostile. To be hostile means to be an enemy He's just simply delivering a hard truth that without Christ, we are hostiles, we are rebels, we are traitors. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that by nature, we are children of wrath. And that's a, a hard word, especially in a place like East Texas, because East Texas is full of so many nice people. Amen? Like, this is a friendly place. They're just nice, friendly, up, upright moral kind of people. And so, it's easy to kind of slip into thinking that we're basically, by nature, good. But Paul says, by nature, we're basically bad, that we are evil, alienated, hostile. Jeffrey Davis, who, who's the pastor of our Marshall Campus pastor, we, we were talking about this text this week, and he said, you know, <laughs> there is no spiritual Switzerland. Think about that. There's no, no neutral. There's no spiritual Switzerland. Even a moral person without Christ is an enemy of God. And that's bad news. But there's some good news. I want you to see where Paul goes with this. In verse 21, he says, this is who you were in the past prior to Christ. You were an enemy. But look at the contrast, the st- strong contrast in verse 22. Circle or underline, put a star by this or an asterisk. Notice this, but now. Aren't you thankful for the but nows of the, of the Bible? I'm thankful. This is who you were, but now this is how you thought, but now this is how you acted, but now this was your status, but now this is what God did. You were alienated and you were hostile and you were evil, but God stepped into that vicious cycle and did something about it. Look what he did. Look what he says right here in the text. But now he has, say it with me together, reconciled you by his physical body through his death. Here's what it means to be reconciled to God. It means we were alienated and hostile and evil. That means we were far from God. To be reconciled, Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2 says it means that those who were far off have been what? Brought near by the blood of the cross. That's what reconciliation is all about. It is about God coming near. Isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas time in the incarnation? God getting close. God looking at an estranged world, a hostile, alienated world and saying, I'm not satisfied to leave you that way. I love you too much for that. I love you so much that even though you are estranged, even though you are hostile, I'm gonna jump into the middle of your mess and I'm going to bring you near to myself. Aren't you thankful for that? That's reconciliation. God steps in and changes our status. And we move from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Reconciliation is really God initiating a friendship with us through the work of his son. Uh, There in direct Texas, uh, I I got to see something unique. It was unique for me anyway. I grew up in Houston. Um, So any other Astros fans this morning? Anybody else celebrating? All right. All right. I've got some Astros socks on this morning to celebrate, but in Houston, I was what you might call a city slicker, okay? Not lots of horses and stuff like that where I grew up, but in direct Texas, they've got lots of cows, they've got lots of horses, and I had the chance to watch a horse get broken for the first time, and that's an amazing thing to watch because that horse is mean. It is ornery. It doesn't want anyone to be around it and yet someone is willing to step into that pen and initiate a relationship with that horse. And it's a beautiful thing to see that horse be transformed from something that is hostile to something that is usable, from an enemy to a friend. And that is exactly what God does for us in Christ. He he steps into this vicious cycle of hostility and alienation and evil, and he initiates a friendship with his people and those who are far off Are brought near to him. Enemies become friends. Now, how does that happen? Well, I want to be really clear here. That doesn't happen because God just decides to ignore the fact that we are sinful. In other words, we can be reconciled to God not because God is some kind, grandfatherly figure who just sort of turns the other way and forgets about the fact that we were so alienated and hostile and evil. That's not the way it works. The only way that we we can be reconciled to God is if God actually does something about our sin. And that's why this little statement, don't miss it, right here in the middle of verse 22 is so important. He has reconciled you. Now, what is the means of our reconciliation? Look at the next phrase. He's reconciled you by his physical body through his death. Paul is saying that God comes near to us not because he just sort of forgets the fact that we are sinful or ignore the fact that we are so alienated. The reason that God can bring us near, the reason that we can be reconciled is because of Jesus' death on the cross for us. And here's what's happening with the death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus' death, listen to me, church, is wrath-bearing. And that's very important because your sin and my sin, the God of the universe will not just ignore it or forget about it, it has to be dealt with. And the Bible is very clear that the way that our sin is dealt with is through the wrath of God, Through his judgment, that means that because of my sin, I deserve nothing less than the judgment of a holy God. And until I know Christ, as a sinner, I am an object of God's wrath. That means if I died without Christ and I stood before my maker, God would pour out judgment on me, which is bad news. So how can God be reconciled to me when I am a sinner in that way? Well, this is where the cross of Jesus comes in. Jesus' cross is wrath-bearing. What that means is that when Jesus dies on the cross, he's actually dying to receive the wrath of God, God's judgment that I deserve for my sin. Charles Spurgeon said that you can summarize the gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. What's happening in the cross is that Jesus is dying the death I deserve. He's taking the wrath I deserve. He is bearing God's judgment for me in my place on the cross. So that God's justice is satisfied. Okay, the Bible word for that, I'm going to give you a big word. I want you to write it down. The word that the Bible uses to describe that is the word propitiation. Okay, let's say that word together. Propitiation. What does propitiation mean? It means satisfaction. That's what propitiation means. It means that God the Father looked at the death of God the Son and his justice was satisfied because Jesus bore the wrath of God for us in our place. And it is because Jesus took all of God's judgment that, folks, there's no more judgment left for you. And if there's no more judgment left for you, that means you don't have to be an enemy of God anymore. You can be a friend of God. Right? Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? We sing it in that song uh, when we say, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine so bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown in Christ as my own. Paul is saying the good news of the gospel is that you are reconciled to God, but it happens by the death of Jesus. Jesus satisfied the justice of God for you by drinking that cup of condemnation. To the very last drop, which means if the cup has been taken care of by Jesus, there's nothing left for you to drink. All the condemnation is gone. And you can be a friend of God. And by the way, not only does does, uh, the Bible talk about propitiation, can I give you one more theological term that's really good? No? I can't? Yes? Okay, thank you. All right. Expiation. Have you ever heard that one? Expiation. Expiation means that God not only forgives our sin, he takes it away. And that's really good news. There's a picture of this in the Old Testament with the idea of the scapegoat. You remember the Old Testament priest would put his hands on the head of a goat and pronounce judgment on that goat, and the goat would go outside the camp, and it was a vivid picture of what God does with our sin, that when you come to know Jesus, not only is your sin forgiven, but it's taken from you. I'm so thankful for that. I'm I'm thankful not only that I have forgiveness, but also cleansing Not only propitiation, God's justice is satisfied, but expiation. God takes my sin far from me, and I can be a friend of God. Now, that's the first thing that the cross of Jesus accomplishes. Here's the second thing. Through the cross, Paul tells us, the guilty can become blameless. The guilty can become blameless. Now, verse 21, Paul says, this is who you were. You were alienated, hostile, evil, right, guilty, But now in Christ, God's reconciled you to himself through his death on the cross. But then notice the last phrase of verse 22. And he he does this in order to present you. Notice a a second triad, right? You were alienated, hostile, evil. Now he gives us a second set of three. He's going to present you holy, faultless, blameless. Aren't you thankful for those three words? After thinking about who we were before Christ, alienated and hostile and evil, now through the work of Jesus on the cross, you can be presented to God holy, faultless, and blameless. Now, what do those three words mean? Well, holy means simply to be righteous. It means to be pure. Uh, uh, Paul says, because of what Jesus has done for you, you can be holy. You can be righteous. Holy is a word that is used to describe the very character of God. God is holy. When you know Jesus, you are made to be like God. That's what sanctification is all about. It's the process where God makes us to look more and more like Himself where we become more and more Christ-like, where God takes all of our sin and begins to do a transforming work inside of us so that we become holy and we become righteous. Now listen, that is not because we are inherently holy or righteous. In other words, that holiness is not something that we drum up or that we earn or that we manufacture. This holy status is something that God does for us and, in fact, it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Listen to what God's Word says uh, there. In chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that, say this with me, in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it means to be holy, folks. It means we become the righteousness of God, but it only happens because we are in Him. You see, God does this transforming work in our lives from the inside out. This is not us trying to manufacture a righteousness of our own. It is not us trying to earn some kind of holy status. It is God depositing his righteousness into our account. It is God changing us from the inside so that from the inside out there is this transforming work of, of where we become more and more like Christ. You know, if you've ever gone to the store and seen a pineapple, that is not a very appetizing-looking fruit, is it? It's all spiky and pokey. It looks like a pine cone. That's why it, how it got its name, pineapple, because it looks like a pine cone. But on the inside, it's sweet. And, and the reason that it's sweet is because there have been all kinds of berries that have fused together and it produces this surprising sweetness. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God does something on the inside. He produces a surprising sweetness in your life. He produces a holiness in your life so that even if you look spiky on the outside, and been to church before, you've seen some spiky looking people, right? But there's something that's been changed on the inside. You've been made holy. You've been made like Christ. So in Christ, you you are presented holy. But then there's a second word that he uses. Look in the text there. It's the word Faultless. Faultless stand before the throne. Aren't you thankful for that lyric? To be faultless means to be without spot or blemish. Uh, It's a word that described the the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Old Testament priests would find an animal that was without blemish to present. And Paul says when you come to faith in Christ, one day Jesus is going to present you before the Father without spot or or blemish. Now, listen again, this is, this is not because we are by nature without blemish. By nature, we are dirty. We are full of spots and blemishes. But Jesus washes the spots away, he, he washes the filth away. Our slate gets wiped clean. And so, what God does, in the words of C.S. Lewis, is He doesn't just make us into nice people, He makes us into new people. And we are faultless before the throne. And then, a third word here Paul uses the word blameless. Now, what does it mean to be blameless? It means that no accusation can be leveled against you. Remember, Paul is using the future tense here. He says, Jesus is going to present you holy, faultless, blameless. That means on the day of judgment, when you stand before holy God, even though you and I deserve blame, even though we deserve accusation, Paul is saying Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, no accusation will be leveled against you. You You've been pardoned. You move from guilty to being declared not guilty. You, You move from filthy to blameless. You are unable to be accused. And that's good news because the Bible says that Satan is the what? The accuser. Satan loves to point his bony finger in our face and remind us of our guilt and our shame and our sin. What Paul is saying here is that through the work of Jesus on the cross, because he paid for all of our sin, that sin debt has been paid in full, that Satan can no longer point his bony finger at us and say guilty because Jesus says they've been washed by the blood of the lamb and we are blameless before him. Now, now, again, how can that happen? Well, it is, it's not because of anything in us, right? I, there are plenty of things I'm guilty of. There, there are plenty of reasons I could be accused. We aren't blameless because there isn't reason for blame. We're blameless because when you come to Jesus, he gives you his righteousness, right? That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. He takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness, That that means when you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're no longer covered in your sin and your shame and your guilt. God takes the righteousness of His Son, Jesus, and covers up your sin and your shame and your guilt in His righteousness. Which means that one day when you stand before God as judge, he will not see your sin and your guilt. He will see nothing less than the righteousness of his very own son. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means I am covered in his righteousness. I am hidden in Christ and I am blameless not because of me but because of him. I get his blamelessness. I get his righteousness. The theologians have called this throughout time alien righteousness. My kids like that term because they think of the little green men. But alien righteousness means it is a righteousness that is not ours by nature. It's a righteousness that God gives us. And God clothes us in it. I, I, uh, growing up in Houston, I worked for a, a judge for a, a period of time. And we went to a really nice restaurant. Uh, one night, and I had dressed up a little bit. I, I was dressed pretty nice. I was wearing a, a collared shirt and a pair of slacks, and showed up to this restaurant. But realized very quickly I had underdressed because everybody at this particular restaurant was dressed to the nines. I mean, they were at least wearing a coat. Most of the people in the restaurant, if they were men, they were wearing a coat and tie. And so I just immediately became self-conscious. I realized I have underdressed. Oh no. And in a very discreet way, the person who welcomed us into the restaurant took me aside and said, uh, sir, we have a dress policy, dress code, but no problem, uh, we have a coat that you can wear. And so they went around the side, there was a little closet there that had a bunch of coats, and it had like the little emblem of the restaurant on the, on the blazer. <laughs> and she handed me that coat. I felt like such an idiot. I just was like, oh my gosh, you know, uh, And I put that coat on, but here's the deal. I had not dressed appropriately. I did not have adequate clothing, but a coat was provided that covered covered up what was inadequate. Now, see, that is is what the gospel is about, right? Without Christ, I am clothed in guilt. I have inadequate resources, but God clothes, clothes us in the robes of his son's righteousness so that what is inadequate is covered up with the righteousness of Jesus, and I move from guilty to blameless because of the work of His Son on the cross. Aren't you thankful for it? Now, here's the third and final thing I want you to see in the text. Through the cross, enemies become friends. The guilty become blameless. But here's the third and final thing. We see it in verse 23. Through the cross, the unworthy become usable for God's glory. Through the cross, through the work of Jesus, the unworthy, become usable for God's glory. Look at verse 23. Paul says, He'll present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But notice this last sentence. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. I, Paul have become a servant of it. Now, that's a kind of an unusual way for Paul to describe himself. I, Paul. I mean, if I went to a restaurant after lunch today and I ordered something and I said, I, Andrew, would like a burrito, <laughs> that's a little strange, right? Paul says, I, Paul. He's, he's emphasizing something here. He's saying, I, Paul have become a servant of the gospel. I think he's wanting us to reflect on how amazing this work of Jesus is, that someone like I, Paul, can become a servant of the gospel. Think about who Paul was. A persecutor of the church and prolific at it. Uh, He was a modern-day, what would be like a modern-day terrorist. He'd arrest Christians, stand by while they were murdered or put into jail. I, Paul, but because of the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross, I, Paul, turns into a servant of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Someone who is so unworthy can be made usable, for God's glory. Folks, that is, that's how God operates. God's in the business of taking unworthy people and making them usable for his glory. He, he can take a Paul who was a persecutor of the church and transform him through the work of Jesus and make him usable for God's glory. How about Paul's friend, the runaway slave Onesimus? You remember the, the story of Onesimus? If you don't remember that story, we're going to get to it in a few weeks because when Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae, he actually sends two letters. He sends the letter to the church at Colossae, and then he sends a letter to an individual in that church by the name of Philemon. And Philemon had a runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus runs away and somehow meets Paul, and Paul leads Onesimus to Christ, and he sends him back to his former master Philemon with this letter to Philemon. Okay, we're going to talk about that letter here in a couple years probably by the time we get to it. But but Onesimus, Now, now here's what's interesting about Onesimus. And by the way, ladies, if you're pregnant, you're looking for potential baby names, just add that one to the list. Okay, Onesimus. You know what Onesimus means in Greek? It means useless. That's what it means, useless. That's why it's so fascinating to me the language Paul uses in the book of Philemon because he sends Onesimus, useless, back to Philemon, and he says, receive him back not as a slave but as a brother because he has become useful to me. You see, Jesus changed useless into a man who could become useful. That's what God does. Think about all the characters throughout your Bible, Abraham, we think about him as a person of faith, but Abraham really was not a great guy. Failed many, many times. He lied, for instance, about his wife. He said that his wife was not his wife, but that she was his sister because he was afraid that he might lose his life if the king of Egypt thought his wife was his wife. So he denies his relationship with his, the most important human relationship that he has in order to save his own skin, and yet God used Abraham to bring his children into the promised land. How about Joseph? We think often about the end of Joseph's story, but how about the beginning of Joseph's story? Joseph is full of pride. He just loves to kind of throw it in his brother's face that he's the favored son. Ends up in prison, and yet God uses Joseph to save his people in a famine. How about Moses? He murders a man, and yet God uses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. How about David, a shepherd from a small town, commits adultery, murders the husband of the woman with whom he had an affair, and yet God used David to rule over his people, Israel, even at one point called him a man after his own heart. This is what God is in the business of doing, using unworthy people to be usable. His glory. Think about all of the unworthy, no name people that God has used throughout history, like the shoe salesman in Chicago. No one knew who he was, and yet a faithful layman led him to faith in Christ. God transformed D.L. Moody's life, and Moody became a, a, a revival preacher who led thousands to Christ. Or how about the farm boy from rural North Carolina? who spoke with a thick accent, and yet God used him to bring the gospel to 215 million people, Billy Graham. God is in the business of using unworthy, unknown people, but God takes unworthy people and makes them usable for his glory, and that's, that's good news, folks, because that means that whoever you are and whatever you've done, God can use you. Amen? God can transform you. Into something that's an instrument of his glory. Um, my, my wife has kind of been into this thing over the years. Uh, some of you ladies have seen this on Pinterest uh, palette art. You know what I'm talking about? Palette art. It's where you take a palette, right? Something that most people would just throw away as junk and you do things to it. You paint it and you do things, you know? And all of a sudden that thing that would have been thrown in somebody's trash now it's like your dinner table or something like that, right? And and it's an amazing thing because somebody has a vision, right? My wife can see something that somebody is just going to throw away as somebody's trash and she's going to totally transform it into something that we're going to use, right? And that's that's what God is in the business of doing. Looking at people that the world would say useless unworthy, no purpose, and God says, I can take them and transform them and use them for my glory. Aren't you thankful for that? Now, what is our response to all of that? I mean, that's really good news, that we can be friends of God, we can be blameless, we we can be usable for God's glory. Well, I I told you I would return to this little statement in verse 23. It's the third set of three that Paul uses in these three verses, right? Alienated, hostile, evil, holy, faultless, blameless. But look in verse 23 if indeed you remain grounded, steadfast in the faith, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Paul's saying this is our response to the truths of the gospel. We should be grounded, steadfast, and unshifting. And to be grounded, that's an architectural term. It refers to a foundation. He's saying, make the gospel the foundation of your life. And then he says, be steadfast. To Be steadfast means to be firm or to be sturdy. If you think about the gospel being the foundation, then the house that you build on that foundation, you want that to be a firm, sturdy house. Paul is saying, make the gospel your foundation, but make sure that you're building your house sturdy on the truth of the gospel. And then he says, and, and don't be shifted away from it. That sh- word shifted away means to move from one thing to the other, to be, shift, to, to be shifting. He says, don't be shifting away from the gospel, from this hope. And some people do that. They, they, they're in with Jesus one day, and they're, they're not really interested the next day. They're really committed on Sunday, but then Monday rolls around. And they kind of they have a foot in both worlds, right? They have what, what Jesus says is having two masters. Paul says don't do that. If this gospel message is true, if Jesus is Lord of the cross, then don't shift. Instead, be all in for Jesus. That's what it means to be unshifting. It means to be all in for Jesus. It says I'm not going to serve two masters anymore. I'm not going to have one foot in, one foot out. I'm not going to move here and move there, be with Jesus one day and not with Jesus the next day. I'm going to throw my whole life towards Jesus. I'm going to be all in with him. And folks, that is the response, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is the response to the truth of the gospel that you've heard this morning. If you say, boy, what a good good God, what great news, what what a great gospel that we have, that we can, can be friends of God and we can be blameless and we can be usable for God's glory, how should you respond to it? Be all in for Jesus. Amen? And if you're here today and you're you've never made that decision to be all in for Jesus, then let me just tell you, this is a wonderful invitation. You don't have to be an enemy, you can be a friend. You don't have to be guilty, you can be blameless. You don't have to be unworthy, God can make you usable for his glory. And if you'd like to enter into a relationship with Jesus like that, if you'd like to say, I'm tired of having one foot in, one foot out, I wanna be all in with Jesus, let me just tell you how you can do that. The Bible says you should turn from your sin, you should put your trust in Christ, And you should make Christ the greatest treasure of your life. Say, I don't want my way anymore. I'm tired of the alienation. I'm turning to Jesus. And I'm going to trust that what he did in the cross and in the resurrection is enough to change me. And I want him to be what's most important now. I want to be all in. If you'd like to make that decision today... I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Just in a moment, we're going to sing one final song of worship, and at the end of our worship service, you can walk out those back doors, and we have decision prayer partners. They'll be wearing a badge so you can identify them, and they would love to sit down with you and talk with you about really what it means to have a relationship with Jesus like that. We want to make sure. They'll take all the time that you need to make sure you really understand what it means to be all in for Jesus, and so if you've never done it before, I pray today would be the day that you make that decision. Now church, I'm going to invite you to stand. I want to just pray for us and then we're going to sing one final song of worship. Jesus, we are so thankful for your work on the cross for us. We're thankful for friendship and blamelessness. We're thankful you can use us. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who's never made the decision to be all in, that today they would make that decision. For those of us who know you, Help us to live for your glory. Help us to be all in in our relationship with you. And we pray it in Christ's name.